You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupatin. This week on the show, my conversation with a Minnesota-based folk blues lifer who writes novelistic, multi-layered shaggy dog stories that shine a kaleidoscopic light on the defiant, unseen characters thriving in the shadows all around us, Charlie Parr. I send you this dispatch far, far away from home. Uh, Today, I'm on an off day traveling in Bremen, Germany, and just down the street from the old cathedral with its 16th century mummies in the basement and the glockenspiel down the block that rings over your head serenely as you have a beer in the square. It is gorgeous over here, guys. If you ever have the chance to travel through some of the smaller towns in Germany, I urge you to do it. And after my legs got a little too tired from walking these winding streets all day, I got to re-listen to Charlie Parr's last few records. And what struck me immediately was the honest humbleness to it. It's untrained. It's a voice and a guitar in space, without solos or embellishment. You know, Charlie's an admitted introvert, and he enjoys driving long, long stretches alone, particularly because he doesn't have to talk to anyone, impress anyone, or check his phone to see how everyone else is trying to impress him. And thus the music is the work of a mostly solitary man, lost in his thoughts. Long hair covering his eyes like a fluttering veil, his ringing resonator guitar offering covering that quivering voice, and sometimes he's shimmying up the neck with a slide, and sometimes it's just his fingers and his foot pounding and pounding and pounding the beat. It's both rough and brashly direct, and then beautifully delicate and polished like an old knife in a trinket house window. The songs collected on his newest self-titled record are both old-fashioned and sneakily subversive. Cheap Wine, for example, the song keeps ringing in my head. I can see those people filtering in and out of that liquor store as the snow comes down on that Minnesota evening. It's like if Mississippi John Hurt or Taj Mahal were jamming with Kurt Cobain and Lou Reed on a street corner. You have to listen two, three times to be sure of the plot of this mini-movie that's unfolding. What makes those old ladies with their tired eyes go into that liquor store every day and take that cheap wine into the street as the snow comes down and blows upon their hair? Much like another Minnesota-born boy named Bobby Zimmerman, Charlie's best songs shine because of their grinning, angular obtuseness, not in spite of them. Sure, Charlie will add a full band every now and again, and what I saw him play on that cold night on the banks of the Mississippi River was much more psychedelic than I expected. But mostly, Parr is a roving, modern musical monk of sorts, resolutely solitary, sleeping in rest stops in his creaking Kia, peddling his stories from town to town, festival to festival, reaching out to an indifferent world with his twangy, twitchy empathy. And maybe Charlie resonates with these shaggy dog stories and has a deeper empathy than most because of his previous full job, which was helping homeless folks get back on their feet. Because that was his job, to really listen and find out what had happened to these people, not judge or try to change them. And it says a lot, because in many ways, Charlie has been trying to be himself in his music for years. He admits himself that he's not trying to reinvent the wheel or become a huge star who is on the cover of magazines. He found what he loves to do, he found how he loves to play, and he just wants to do that. Just that. Whenever I travel away from the United States, I realized that we live in a country with an ambition addiction. Most of the creative people I know who are trying to make music or movies or homemade TV shows or trying to be designers or dancers or actors or painters or printmakers or two or three or four of those at once, 
they've moved away from their hometowns, these quiet little villages like Austin, Minnesota, where Charlie Parr is from. Or if you're like me, you rolled away from the gray Midwest to sunnier showbiz shores to try and reinvent yourself, to make music that no one has ever heard, to make every album bigger and bolder than before and completely different every time. You know what? It's exhausting. But I listen to Charlie Parr and I see that his new record has his name on it and his name alone. And it isn't shiny and it isn't perfect and it isn't commercial or catchy. It's just him pure Charlie Parr. And he hasn't moved to Nashville or LA. He stayed in that cold gray north because that's home and that's him. I hope you can take a second wherever you call home and listen through his records and maybe listen to them a third and fourth time. You might hear something different everywhere you are. So without further ado, here he is now, Charlie Parr. They ain't no better Lord, they ain't no better than these bars Coming in here to buy the cheap wine I'm leaning against the counter on a gloomy day Snowfall, clear the sidewalks and the entryway for all the old folks The bombs and the hustlers you tell us who you are and where we are right now all right uh, my name is charlie parr we are at boats and bluegrass festival in winona minnesota on the shores of the mississippi yeah that's right it's right there and you're from these necks of the woods kind of right yeah yeah i'm i i grew up let's see hour and 15 minutes west of here in austin minnesota and now i live in duluth which is four hours north and today is a special day yeah, it is. Oh, I almost forgot. <laughs> Today's the record release day for me. <laughs> caught him on the day his self-titled record is coming out. Is this your 13th record? Did I read that right? Well, it depends on how you count. Uh, uh, 15th if you're just counting regular records and uh, 19th if you're counting live records. And But, you know, records are easy to make. You know, Almost 20. Just, you're almost there. Yeah, so you just you know make one every every year and... Either put it out or don't, but it's a it's a record. You know. Was the first one? Did the first one come out in two thousand two? Two thousand. Two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a minute. What makes you keep making new records? What is the like driving force? The the driving force is so I get to keep playing. You know, <laughs> yeah. rec- records are records are uh, advertising for the show. Right. You know, I don't actually like recording. I don't feel comfortable in studios. It's not my my. Uh, it's not the place that I feel best about myself. It's the place that makes me feel unsure of myself and mm. no confidence in myself whatsoever. But you know, to keep on doing it, keep on going. You know, you keep on making records so that you you know stay stay alive and and have something to give to the people so that you can say, look, I'm playing. Come see me play because you know, for me, live shows are are what I'm after. Right. You know. And you have, you know, definitely a special relationship with 
fans that have grown with you through your records. And, and this record, you know, is kind of a little something new, something old, and you kind of put together a lot of stuff you've been inspired by. Because yeah. you have songs, you know, like uh, Cheap Wine that right. you recorded several years ago, but this is sort of a new invigorated version. Right, right, right. Well, you know, this is a weird time. You know, I've the last couple of years or so have been... Well, you know, hit my fifties and and just you know, it's been it's been. I hate to sound stereotypical, but it's been kind of weird. And and uh, this record feels like, uh, you know, kind of a touching base in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I wanted to do something, but um, the thing that I that I wanted to do next isn't done. Mm. Or it's almost done, but it doesn't feel like it's it's going to be a minute before it's done. And this felt like. Almost like something I needed to do, like like uh, cleaning out the junk drawer in a way. You know? <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to be said about appreciating through time the work that you've been able been able to create, because I definitely feel like a lot of my songs I'm I'm both like proud and ashamed of like certain oh, songs yeah. that I wish my self now could re-sing some recordings, and a lot of times we think, well that's done you know like that's a ghost part of me that recorded that and i can never get that back but it's like you can record it right now you can do it again well and and you know as well as anyone you know songs are never really done yeah you know really because you know music we're unique you know we're not like painters or authors you know you paint a picture and you sell it or give it away and it's in someone else's house and you can't get to it anymore to fix it right you know well you know someone who writes a song a musician Every night you get to sit down and paint your picture again. Right. And you can do whatever you want. And so, you know, it's just a short leap in my mind anyway to like re-recording it just for another chance at making an Charlie Parr greatest hits? Kind of. I mean, you know, because I'd never release a record full of the old recordings and call it anything because I don't don't know if I like those records anymore. But there's something about that Cheap Wine song, which is, you know, that's the last song on the record that really has this lived-in story, you know, talking about a liquor store owner who has this dark secret type thing. And, uh, you know, there's this line in it of this solitary life that this person lives. I make my own way, you know. And you often tour by yourself, going long stretches in your car. Yeah, almost always. Do you find yourself as a person who finds peace in solitary, or do you have to bring your music to people to find the joy at the end of the day no i you know i'm i'm an introvert and i've been one all my life and and so it's really you know being on stage and being around folks and interacting with them takes a little more energy than than i have sometimes you know being on the road all day by myself is is where i draw Mm. a lot of energy from um i like being by myself and having those those drives are you know, you've got the perfect excuse. You don't have to deal with anything or mm-hmm. talk to anybody, really. You don't have to, you know, you're not supposed to answer your phone. You're driving, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that it re-energizes me, and when I get to the show, then I'm kind of ready to interact and and get on stage, and because and, 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 that's I love doing that. It's just a whole nother set of um, skills or whatever for me. Is it true that that song "Cheap Wine" was going to be a, a novel, yeah, in yeah. some form? It was. It was terrible. I wrote I wrote this this short book that "Cheap Wine" is part of it. It's basically about you know a guy that um, 
uh, gets murdered by a liquor store owner, and the liquor store owner frames another guy for it. And it's just, it's a, not a very good story. <laughs> um, a friend of mine had read it and said, oh, God, this is really terrible. It's, don't <laughs> don't try to do this. And so I, I mined the story I mined the story for songs. And, and on this record, Cheap Wine and Ace of Jones Blues are both from that same story, mm. just different points of view. What's the other one about? Uh, Ace of Jones is uh, the person who was framed mm. for the murder. And the song is about, you know, him just kind of bumming around panhandling people and around the liquor store and the, the, the owner comes out one day and gives him some free booze and sends him on his way and seven blocks later the police catch him. <laughs> how's, how's the chorus go? <laughs> it goes, uh, uh, oh, it's, the, it's the one that goes, uh, lay him down, uh, lay him down, something, something. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Do you find yourself drawn to uh, stories and characters that sort of live in the shadows of society that maybe won't be talked about unless you sort of mine their stories? I don't, yeah, I guess so, because that's what I end up writing about. Um, you know, I, I don't know quite why, but that's, that's, those, are the, that, those are the stories that end up being the most interesting to me, um, and I'm, I'm really not sure why. People on the margins are always seem to, seem to have the stories that, I, that I'm most interested in hearing about. The tune Mag Wheels kind of resonated with me as a, you know, about a kid who's this car nut dreaming about just getting out there and right. his whole life would be set if he could just get... Get those wheels, man. A car... With the rims. With the rims. <laughs> but also, like, the dream of, ha of having, like, that galaxy, that crappy old car, but in his mind it was a really fast car, oh, yeah. you know? Because that's me. That's, a, that's, that's another one of those songs that turned out, you know, there's always a little bit of auto... Biographical yeah. in every song, but that one has probably a big chunk of autobiographical in it because I had the '68 Galaxy. Yeah, it's just a pooch, you know. Yeah. But I was, you know, get the rolling down the freeway with the big boat front end, and I felt, oh, this thing's all right. And um, I was the one that was coming by some some yard sale around Austin where I saw those rims laying in the front yard. Woman wanted twenty dollars for these aluminum slot mags. Mm -hmm. I had that twenty dollars on my pocket so fast. And my buddy that was with me said, "Those are Chevy rims, man. You can't, you can't buy those. They're not gonna fit." <laughs> right. Like, ah, oh, so I was completely heartbroken. Never <laughs> did get decent rims for that ugly old four-door Galaxy that would look stupid with rims on it. Zero anyway. to sixty in thirty seconds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you're from Austin, Minnesota, which is the home of Spam. Spam. Is that right. correct? Yep. Hormels is pretty much. All that's there, the, the, the packing house, my folks both worked at the packing house, my sister, extended family, everybody else in town. It was town kind of centered around the place in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's just turning into fall now, and they're releasing pumpkin spice spam. Did you see that? I did not see that. I don't keep Sounds up terrible, with the different but... flavors. <laughs> <laughs> and frankly, I'm a vegetarian, and I have been for, for a long, long, long time, so... Spam, and we never really saw Spam in the house. It was My dad said it was too expensive for what it was. <laughs> Your dad must have been very frugal. Yeah, we were, we were pretty frugal. He did not. He worked for Spam and he wouldn't buy it? Yeah, oh no, he wouldn't buy it. I mean, he... Wait, you know, what is cheaper than Spam? Well, it's actually for... I mean, if you see what it is, yeah. you know, you start to, like, understand what, what is actually what in is there. What is it? It's well, like a, it's pork shoulder and ham and a ton of salt, basically. Right. That's what's in there. It's nothing really weird in there, but but 
you know, I think his his mind, he's a farmer, you know, he was a farmer growing up, and his mind goes to, like, what actually does it take to make this product? Right. And why are you charging $2 for that? <laughs> when did you become vegetarian? Oh, it's probably no more than, like, 15 years ago now. So... Is it true that you cook vegan meals within your car? Well, on the exhaust manifold. How does that work? Well, you know, when you're on the road, you get food, and I'm on the road by myself. I can't finish it all. Yeah. I take all the leftovers I can get. I buy a package of those, you know, 12-inch tortillas. Right. Everything is a burrito now. (laughs) So you just wrap it all up in a burrito. You wrap it in tinfoil. Put it on the exhaust manifold. I rigged up... um, like a little wire harness so it doesn't fall off. Mm-hmm. Um, you need you need long drives mm-hmm. because engines are really efficient now. They just don't put out the kind of heat mm-hmm. that you need to really cook. What are you driving? It's a Kia. It's a little tiny Kia Soul. Mm-hmm. It's great mileage, but it's super efficient. So getting that engine hot enough to cook on is impossible. So when you're out west, especially, and you're doing five hours, you can warm a burrito up. If it's, you know, cook, it's a cooked food. You know, you're not... It's like a over... It's a glorified microwave is what's okay. happening there. So it's not really cooking it's just kind of warming warming up. something up so when you get to where you're going there's a nice warm burrito under the hood for you it's good to keep in mind mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> do you camp out a lot of places or are you doing the hotel scene uh, or a lot of a lot of car camping um if someone offers me a room I'll, i usually take it um but uh had a van up until recently and that was kind of nice because i had a bed in the back but I burned out the bottom bearings on that, so I'm in my Kia now. It's not too bad. You know, put the seat back, roll into a rest area after the show and get some sleep. And, you know, after a few nights, it starts to become painful. But I mean, yeah, it's like you're not a spring chicken anymore. I know, I know. You could well, probably splurge for a quality in every other few yeah. nights. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, last year I broke my shoulder, so... There's times when you wake up and I've got a big metal plate and a bunch of pins in there and you wake up, you've slept on it wrong, and mm. it just kills. So Yeah, I remember hearing about that because we, we played a show with you, I believe, a little before that at Bowery Ballroom in New York. Right, right. That was the summer, the earlier in the summer. And then right summer. after that, you were, what, skateboarding with your daughter? Is that yeah, what happened? Yeah. And I... I fall, I, you know, I'm not a good skateboarder. I fall all the time. I, you know, fell when I was 11. I fell when I was 49. And, you know, and and uh, this time I was just coming down a hill a little too fast and hit some little piece of nothing and just flew through the air, landed right on my shoulder and, and just squashed it. Just luck. And you had to kind of teach yourself how to play again, right? Well, what was happening was I, it was so bad. It was just completely disappointing. You know, like it was shattered. Right. The surgeon wanted initially to put like fake bones in there because Mm -hmm. he said he don't think he could fix it. Right. Well, when he when he when he was able to put all these plates and stuff in it, he didn't think I'd really be able to get my arm up like Mm. this anymore. And I am, but but um, it was it was a really like painful and weird like. I mean, I'm a finger picker, so it's, yeah. it was a weird experience trying to get that rhythm back again. Right. Um, so initially, I was playing the guitar lap style because mm. that's the only way I could do it. I couldn't raise my arm, and once I could start playing lap style, I could kind of feel it coming back. But but even when I could get it back up again the regular way, it was it was um 
you know, it was a, it was a little bit of a journey there to see to like put the guitar where I didn't have any pain, mm. you know. So I got it. It's it's good now. I feel really I actually feel really good now about where I'm at with it, but there's this this quote that uh, a publication wrote about you. It always makes me laugh when people who write sort of press releases or uh, reviews give these like backhanded compliments, right? Yeah, I know those. It goes, Parr is an example of a performer who never allows his gifts to get in the way of the music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does that I mean? I don't even know. I don't know. I got, there was this hilarious review from Scotland that talked about uh, that I am a complete massive slob, but I guess if you've got good stage presence, you don't need to worry about how you look. <laughs> That's what it kind of said. I'm like, eh. <laughs> you do I do feel like you would fit in as like an R. Crumb comic hero <laughs> I love R. Crumb <laughs> <laughs> yeah or, or who, who did who did the fabulous furry freak brothers that, yeah that, that guy <laughs> what would you describe your style as is it sort of like folk blues with this sort of uh, there, cause there is a kind of a trancey uh, yeah. almost like psychedelic um, well I, thread through it. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was when I well here when I was growing up, in the front of my house was my dad and my dad's record collection. He was into folk music and blues music and mm. old country music, so I heard a lot of that. In the back of the house where my sister stayed, she's into the Grateful Dead, she's into Captain Beefheart, mm. you know, and some of that more, you know, Jefferson Airplane, some of the mm. psychedelic stuff. I was kind of getting both of those things. Now, when I listen to music, you know, I'm listening to pre-war blues. I'm listening to um, uh, you know, psychedelic music, a lot of a lot of uh, drone music. You know, mm. it it does seep in places here and there, and I'm happy about that because you know the, the genres are are um, get to be confusing after they, they they get split up so much that right. suddenly you're in this little weird pocket that you don't even really understand. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what would you say the difference is over the last few records? You know, Stump Jumper in 2015, Dog 2017. Do you feel like you've found your niche, or do you think that you're evolving into something a little more elevated from before? No, I definitely don't think I'm evolving. Um, I think I think I found like the thing that I do, and whether it has a place in the world or not, I guess isn't my problem. <laughs> but it's what I can do, you know. And you listen to people, you, you know, you can you can you can hear it. You can hear the thing that they can do, and right. they. And that's that's why you listen to them, hopefully. And I think that over the past few records, I've kind of like found myself thinking, okay, this is this is what I can do and what I like to do, right? What and I should be grateful and accepting of it, and try to try to develop some confidence around it. And I think in in a lot of ways, I've I've kind of gotten better at the self confidence mm. thing over the past couple of records. Well, there's always the fine line between sort of defiant folk singer style and commercialism and commerce right mm-hmm. you are a small business in a way Absolutely, you know yeah. you have two kids right I have like two kids. you know you're you're supporting a family on the idea that your music is an entity that people want to buy right in some form that's true and it, it kind of made me laugh when i saw that you know this song uh what 1922 uh off your record cheap wine was in this big cell phone commercial campaign in Australia and yeah. in New Zealand. And there's this line, I think you open it, open the song with, you know, that I gave all my money to the government. And it's this sort of, right. you right. know, basically like 
subterranean homesick blues yeah, yeah. vibe, but there's something about that defiant yeah. streak in music that commercials love. Right. You know, I know, I still don't understand what happened there because you know I was working with the the, the dude the director that commercial was directing this movie that I was we were doing mu- music for this film right and he said he said oh I did this commercial you know and I, I used your song as kind of like the track for the, the the sample of the commercial and the company loved it you know do you want to just leave it do you mind letting I said if I don't have to do anything like I'm not writing commercial music right. if they're going to use the song as it is right that's kind of on them because if they haven't listened to the song it's <laughs> yeah. not you know but whatever and I got to go to Australia, and, and, and that's been fun, getting to go there. And I love Australia very much, so it's it's fine. It's just weird. It's just really weird. What is the strangest thing you've seen traveling solo on the road that you can remember recently? Uh, coming north out of L.A. on my way uh, to San Francisco, I saw a, a dude riding a motorcycle with a sidecar and a standard poodle in the sidecar wearing... <laughs> aviator goggles nice. and they were going like a hundred miles an hour <laughs> and i saw him in the rearview mirror i'm like that can't be real and then he gets up beside me and like i just about went off the road and like they're both wearing aviator goggles the dog like is matching too. matching aviator goggles and the dog's ears are like Arr. that was pretty weird do you have dogs at home yeah well no actually my dog died just uh just not too long ago i had to uh, um uh uh really aggressive cancer it took her in like four days mm. had a dog is there a song that you wrote about her um not really I mean the, the song actually actually the song dog is probably as much about my dog as is it about any other dog but um you know uh not really can you recall a night where a show went so badly that you questioned your life choices. Absolutely. Recently. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of a lot of those. <laughs> or just 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 last week I, I was doing a or yeah, I was doing a thing um at this little venue in Duluth and it just I just wasn't feeling it like the sound didn't it felt like every time I touched the guitar it was making sounds I wasn't enjoying hearing, you know. Yeah. And I felt like it wasn't anybody's fault. I was just not getting what I needed out of the out of the sound. I got this little EQ on stage. I kept mm-hmm. messing with it, and the more I messed with it, the worse I felt about it. And it really wasn't the sound. It's a confidence thing for me. And yeah. you know, gigs go off the rails that way because I'm just like my confidence just goes straight down the toilet mm. because of some weird sound issue that I I can't control, and nobody nobody really can control it because you know the room sounds one way one minute, and then sounds a completely different way a different minute. Right. And if you're listening to it, that's probably the mistake that I make is actually listening too much. You know, not just kind of crawling into myself and playing the guitar. Do you feel like you drift away in a, in that sense that you're one with your instrument and and you're inside your story as you're as you're telling it yeah. in a way that can completely overcome the confidence thing and that the audience almost isn't there, that you're almost living this movie. Yeah, those are the shows I'm after. Those are the best shows when the audience goes away, the everything, the sound system, you know, the wires yeah. and the speakers and all that crap goes away and I can just play. Mm. That's, that's, that's what I love about performing. 
If you could play one venue before you die, where would it be? I've always wanted to play at Red Rocks. I'm not I'm not that kind of performer that probably will ever get to play at Red Rocks, but I, I really like that place. Um, it is sort of the bucket list spot kinda, yeah. for all of us it's right now. Kinda, yeah, it's kind of the place that everybody thinks about. Um, a place that you've played already that you really remember being special? Oh, there's a lot of those. Um, Hotel Utah in San Francisco mm. is one of my very favorite venues. I really love that place. With the um, weird little balcony yeah, upstairs. Yeah, the weird little balcony. like that. And the ship's thing as you come yeah. down there. I really I, I like that vibe. You know, my favorite places are like weird little vibey places like yeah. that that I just really, or had a really good night. Yeah. And maybe remember the audience or my guitar playing and then go back to it a year later and it's not the same place anymore yeah. or something happened to it. But I love those little kind of vibey places like that. Um, you know, I always, you know, try to try to get back to those places if I can. The thing that I always wonder about a performer like you is what is the dream situation, right? Because I think you have, uh, maybe as a person and a performer, a humbleness to you, you know? You're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Mm. You're trying to sort of perfect this style that you've created, mm-hmm. you know, which mixes sort of early finger-pick blues with, you know, folk and, and almost like garage rock and roll in a way. Sure, sure. And so it's like, what is the goal? Like, what is right. the, you know, goal 20 albums in? Yeah. Well, the goal is what it always was. It, it's... Uh, um what sustainability what do you call that mm. traction i want to yeah. i want to you know okay before i left for europe i stopped at palmer's bar and spider john kerner's in there having a cup of coffee doing this crossword puzzle mm-hmm. man's 82 mm-hmm. he's still playing still doing the thing you know and in a way he represents my goal mm. you know i want to just grow old and play the guitar mm-hmm. and like you know um like like, like, you know, just trying to unravel a knot, you know, mm-hmm. I want to have time to finish unraveling that knot. Mm. And that's, that's the goal. That's kind of always been what I've thought about when I, when I, when I quit my job in, in 2002 and just decided to play. Where, I, where were you working? I was working for, for an agency that did outreach to people who were homeless. Mm. It was a great job and I loved the job, but I also had an offer to go with Alan Sparhawk over to Ireland and play some shows with the Black Eyed Snakes. And I wanted to do that, so I took a hiatus. And then I got more offers and more offers, and finally my boss says, well, just do this. You know, mm. unfortunately, your job will always be here for you. Yeah. Because um, that's the kind of where we live. But um, And if I went back to work, that would be the work I would want to go back to. But, um, you know, my goal has always just been, I want to. I just want to play. I want to do this. I want to untangle my knot. And, and do this, and then when the bottom falls out of this thing, you know, I'll still sit in the kitchen and work on it. It's going to be fine, you know. Mm. I don't want much more than that. I had uh, lunch with my landlord the other day, who's a big music fan supporter of my band, Dust Bowl Revival, mm-hmm. and she has this sort of, this view of the homelessness crisis that comes from sort of the other side, the people who own the buildings sure. and have to refurbish these places and keep things safe and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And we agree about just about everything, but we had this impasse mm-hmm. where we're like, it was hard for her to have sympathy for these people right. 
who were ruining her properties, right? right? And it's like, well, why can't we figure out what to do with them, you know, type thing? And there becomes this sort of uh, lack of humanity that Mm -hmm. comes from certain sides of that argument where there are them that can't be dealt with, like creatures that need to be driven out. That's That's the first thing we need to do, though. I mean, we need to change our perspective, you know, and get rid of that them. Right. You know, when I was working, you know, the thing that struck me all the time is just just how like every every person it is, mm. you know, just meeting people. It can people, happen to anyone. A- absolutely anyone at any time and it doesn't take much especially now with the with, you know, the the just kind of the the nature of the the country we live in right now. People would be surprised at the precipice they're standing right next to and not even know it. And by creating a them mm. or by valuing property above, above people, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's almost impossible to take the, the even the smallest steps towards solving the problem because the problem is going to mean, you know, letting go of that language, letting go of your connection to, to, to inanimate objects and, and money and, mm. and just trying to, you know, place uh, all these people before all this stuff. As someone who's worked, you know, in that field, do you feel like there's something that people can do on a very everyday basis that can help? Like, yeah. what is the thing that can help pe- those people most? Well, I think I think it's the thing that's, you know, politically, I, I honestly, I'm a big believer in the, the thing that, that is going to is going to start the changes that we want to see are the things that are going to happen in your in your in your house, in your neighborhood, in your town, mm-hmm. you know, are there people who are homeless in your town? You know, can you get to know them and find out what happened to them? Mm. You know, can you can you educate yourself about their situation at least? Right. Even if you decide... Hear that, their stories. Hear the stories. Even if you decide you don't want to do anything else, mm-hmm. can you at least find out what happened mm-hmm. and, and look them in the eye and, and understand that they're a person like you are? Mm. You know, that might start to break down some of this us and them problem. It, I think it's actually probably it's I think it's easier than than it seems like it is you know you know we arrive at that intersection in our cars with so many assumptions about the the individual mm-hmm. flying a sign on the on the viaduct you know mm-hmm. as soon as those assumptions go away and you can honestly say hey man what happened mm-hmm. you know and look them in the eye and tell them your name and as someone who sleeps in their car on a regular basis traveling the country right. you probably have much more sympathy and or true understanding about sort of the place where it can end up, right. you know. Well, there's, a, you know, the 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 um, places where people can park and sleep in this country are full of cars with people sleeping in them, and yeah. I don't know if they're all itinerant musicians on the road to play <laughs> folk songs. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. I want to do a, a, a brief creative exercise, and then we'll play a song. All right. So I'm going to say a word, and you're going to think of a moment from your life maybe it was a, a show or a song that moved you first thing that comes to your head right. okay ready Mississippi Flames Mississippi Flames oh and see all I can think about is Mississippi and the first time I got to play in Clarksdale I got to play with uh, Hezekiah Early and and uh, Kenny Brown at the Shack em Up Inn hmm. Mississippi always brings that image to me and I love Clarksdale and the weird little festival that they had down there do you think that as a white blues player that you are fully 
brought into the blues world or is it sort of a different perspective? I think it's a different perspective. I don't think that you can like fully inhabit that world. I also though, of, of the, the musicians that I've been um, kind of, you know, honored to meet and play with that are people of color, they've allowed me mm. to come in and it's been more kind of other white musicians right. who have not been comfortable with that. Um, but I do admit there's, there's no way that you can a- obtain that perspective. You can't do that. My, my perspective is always going to be, you know, what it is. And, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not even standing on the shoulders of, 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 of the masters. I'm, I'm sitting at their feet, you know, trying to learn. But you're definitely, I think, keeping a tradition going that, you know, Reverend Gary Davis and, and Charlie Patton, you know, Mississippi yeah. John Hurt. Those are my heroes. Th- those, those people are not around anymore. Right. And it, I think it takes people to honor their memory. Totally. And to bring it to a younger generation. Just watching those young hipsters in New York when we played with you yeah. watch your music. They had no idea who you were, but they were entranced yeah. and they were brought into the spirit of that music yeah. in a way that they never would otherwise. Well, that's that's good. And I'm I'm super happy to to be there for that, you know, and, and that's the way I got into it though. Mm. I got into it watching Dave Ray. Mm. You know, and, and my dad's record collection and my sister's record collection, Spider John Kerner, you know, I never got to go see Reverend Gary Davis play. Mm. You know, I, I, I kind of arrived there in a, a less kind of organic way, but I, I feel like I arrived there, mm-hmm. you know. All right, one more creative thing. Okay. River Stones. Oh, we're right on the, right on the shore of the Mississippi right now. I used to play in Prairie du Chien at this little place that I can't remember the name of. And every time I played there, the place was packed every night, full of smoke, mm. and everybody was really drunk. And I always had a really good time. There's no stage. You just sat near mm. the door. Mm. So people were staggering in and out. They could, like, run right over you. People would stop mm. and, like, tap on your shoulder while mm. you were playing a song. You got any rolling papers? <laughs> like, you know, no. Yeah. Just keep on playing. And I'd play for four hours without stopping because I was wow. scared if I took a break <laughs> that I would end up getting, you know, getting, getting like thrown up on or something. But it was such, <laughs> it was an amazing, an amazing like experience and, and a way to like really get down to it. And you'd leave the place and in the middle of the night and you could hear the river. Mm. I love that. Mm. I love that. I'd always go down there and sleep in this little parking area by the river what song would you like to play well i could play you a song uh called on stealing a sailboat which is where the guitar happens to be tuned right now let's do that
now, Mr. Charlie Parr. You can go to charlieparr.com for his music and his tour dates. His self-titled record just came out. I got to talk to him hours after it was released. It is wonderful. It brings together some of his old favorites and new songs you've never heard. He'll be touring across the country supporting it, starting in Pennsylvania, going to D.C. and North Carolina and Georgia and Tennessee all throughout October, so please check that out. And if you go over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that there's some really great info from an article on October 1st about Charlie, uh, including that his real name is Jeff. I take it back. I said he didn't have to reinvent himself, and yet he did. As you might have heard earlier, I'm currently in Germany with my band Dust Bowl Revival. Uh, we are playing some places we've never played before. Uh, tomorrow we're going to a little town outside of Hamburg, and then we'll be playing in Denmark and uh, right across the bridge from Copenhagen in Malmo, Sweden on October 10th, and then going to the Netherlands and then flying to Spain for the first time. I apologize for my voice being a little bit rough today, but you know what? I've never seen anything like it. The first four shows we played in Germany, every show has demanded double encores. Even if it's just 50 people, these folks are so friendly and so giving of themselves. I can barely speak, but it's been really, really fun and rewarding so far. And uh, when Dust Bowl returns to the States, we'll be playing uh, in Cincinnati, uh, outside Cleveland, and in Rochester, and in Woodstock, New York. One last thing. We are going to England as well at the end of October, and I'll have a few days in London with nothing to do. So if you have English bands or artists that you love, who you think I should interview for this show, send a note to our Instagram. That's Show on the Road Podcast. Thanks so much. 
The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.